Welcome to the Auxiliary Chamber, the International Law Podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to the Auxiliary Chamber. I am thrilled to be here today with Benedetta Galeazzi, a master's student at Sciences Po studying international security, specializing in human rights and the Middle East. Together, we're going to be looking at her war studies dissertation on to what extent are international legal provisions able to protect people with disabilities in context of armed conflict, which was a disability study in the post-colonial critique of neoliberal ableism. To begin, how are you? Thank you. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really good. It's really nice to talk to you. Maybe could you tell us a bit more about what your background is with this topic? Yes. Yeah, so basically, my interest in disability um, has kind of always been present, uh, having a personal connection from within my family with disability. And uh, having moved around when I was growing up, I was able to see how disability was, you know, accounted for in the different school systems in Italy and in the Netherlands. Uh, and then also I've had the chance of working at the International Association of People with Down Syndrome in Italy on the EU-funded project called Valuable Plus. It's a great initiative. And so kind of becoming aware on how international efforts can implement positive change even on a national basis. And then that's all culminated into my research in my dissertation where they tell you to pick something you're passionate about and that is understudied and I think this definitely hits both. Lastly before we begin I think it's fun to mention that and we actually met in high school almost five years ago in a French class which shows that it's just crazy how time flies and kind of interesting where academic paths diverge and then come back to to here. Yes indeed I'm excited to be here thank you so much for having me. Of course. So maybe just to begin and give a little table of content. Today in our discussion, we're going to begin by looking at the theories of disability study and how this has impacted the current legal framework. Then we're going to look at this framework and specifically at the international humanitarian law one and the international human rights frameworks. And then we're going to finish by applying them to a case study to fully determine and demonstrate maybe why these laws don't really function as they should. Perfect. To begin. Could you maybe help us a little bit by defining the areas that we're going to talk about? Or how do we currently understand the notion of people with disabilities? Yes. Okay. So definitely definitions are very important in this realm. Basically, there have been pivotal advancements in disability studies in the past 70 years. Initially, persons with disability were regarded as basically embodiments of their impairment. And they were only looked at through a medical lens something that needed to be corrected or cured or possibly eliminated altogether. Um, instead, disability studies shifted to adopting a social model uh, in the late 20th century and provided a more holistic approach which divided the terms disability and impairment. Understanding that impairment is the specific, you know, functional limitation of an individual, while limitation is not correct, but functional difference, let's say embodied difference, uh, whereas disability is the socially generated system of discrimination by disabling environments. So it's the societal responses which are inappropriate to the embodied difference. So it's very inescapably tied to the environment. And that also gives us reason for hope and for change. We understand that it's a constructed phenomenon. 
And this helps us understand why in the current society uh, we need to shift away from an ableist mindset. So ableism is another probably key term that uh, we should kind of define. Uh, and it's the assumption that humans are able-bodied. And this assumption permeates all institutions and structures that are around us. And uh, it's kind of being brought uh, to the forefront and to general public attention now with more discussions of uh, diversity and inclusion and increasing inclusivity and accessibility. Uh, but definitely a lot more can be done given that also there is a very broad spectrum of impairments that people may be affected by and that disability is not experienced in the same manner by all persons with disability. But I think today in our discussion, we're not going to be talking into the specific ones, but taking persons with disability in a more uh, general uh, overarching term. Those definitions are really important for us to then understand how the system works. And I think we discussed a little bit before about the context that we place this in. And I think you mentioned, so correct me if I'm wrong, that over a billion people today live with some form of disability, according to the World Bank. And that, as you mentioned, this movement really began around 70 years ago, which marks, of course, the end of the Second World War, where so many atrocities happened. And that that was really the platform that was used as a springboard to really start this, this legal and also academic and social movement to look at disabilities and then kind of progress from there. And that's also one of the reasons why some of the terms that we're going to be discussing later, some of the definitions, might seem a little bit outdated to us now because they kind of are rooted in those conflicts. Definitely. I think it's very important to consider the origins of this in understanding how it is disability is very much interlinked with war. And that's why I've decided to kind of specialize into that. And that's why we think we're going to be talking about international humanitarian law, uh, because the relationship between disability and war is actually sustained by innumerable historical example. Even the Nazi regime's T4 program of extermination targeted adults and children with disabilities in institutions and hospitals. So they've actually been the invisible targets historically of genocide, eugenism and discrimination. And this has resulted to into the denial of their basic rights, which is why with the human rights movement, there's a new human rights model to disability, which can help better protect this, let's say, more vulnerable category. Okay. You mentioned these models. Could you maybe go a little bit into what type of theories are behind these definitions or what type of theories really laid the groundwork for this type of uh, analysis? Yes, definitely. So, as I said, initially it was a medical model and then considering disability as a socially produced injustice, scholars have shifted onto understanding it through a social model. And finally, in the 21st century, we've elaborated a human rights model to disability uh, that acknowledges that people with disabilities have, with impairment, have equal rights to other citizens and that uh, they share the commitment to challenging widespread negative attitudes towards disabilities and fighting stigma and empowering persons with disabilities to have a voice. However, I think it's also important to note that this human rights approach has come under fire. Indeed, it is not a process that has occurred without criticism, especially in the recent years, given that it seems to still be a Western exercise and not um, necessarily representative of those who become disabled via conflict and those who are rendered impaired and rendered disabled uh, because of forms of colonial oppression or exclusion or dependency. So as you mentioned, war then is the locus for the production of disability and 
this is really understudied, as you mentioned in your thesis, and that this is why we have to look at it. Because one of the biggest indications for me is that if you look around the narrative of war, let's say, such as the US invasion of Iraq that you looked a little bit in your thesis, you talk about how many people are killed, but not how many people were left behind with a disability or had the disability exasperated or were severely impacted because of it. And I think this already just shows how understudied the area is. It's such an important area, but we don't really look at it. It's not something that statistics are brought of or maybe are projected as much. Yeah, indeed. I mean, even in a conference held by the International Committee of the Red Cross and the Geneva Academy recently, one of um, the leading scholars, Sassoli, admitted, I just published a book of more than 600 pages about international humanitarian law and the word disability does not appear there. I think this was a striking remark that really, uh, in, yeah, it really demonstrated how even those who do study international humanitarian law are not always aware of considerations of disability, despite the fact that armed conflict irrefutably has a disproportionate impact on persons with disabilities, because they both directly produce disability, such as in Afghanistan or Iraq, causing the loss of limbs or even emotional trauma, but they can also pre-exacerbate pre-existing impairments, as you mentioned too, and because they can pose obstacles for people with disabilities in accessing information and emergency and humanitarian assistance. So the entire process of conflict and of surviving conflict for a person with an impairment becomes uh, extremely more challenging. If we looked at how the Geneva Conventions as such, an, such key documents in international humanitarian law really defined or should have protected people with disabilities, we find that they would have fallen under the category of wounded or sick persons in warfare. And this shows a really big problem with the human rights language and this model, because it reflects the outdated medical approach to disability, defining persons with disability solely by their impairment, framing them as passive, weak, defective, or vulnerable, which is then a stereotype that essentially represents persons with disabilities and entrenches them in opposition to this battle-ready, hypermasculinized version of a combatant who is then celebrated, risks their lives, and then this really jeopardizes international humanitarian law and really doesn't help persons with disabilities in this context. So what's missing is that these provisions that specifically address disabling impacts of war, which are then not visible, but rather experienced. Only envisioning a medical response is do doesn't really work because it's such a multifaceted issue and people with disabilities are impacted in so many different ways. Absolutely, absolutely. I could not agree more. I think I think a lot of room, uh, there's a lot of room for improvement there. And I think that the most relevant and available instrument which we have at the moment uh, as a blueprint is the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which was, uh, yeah, we can say the first comprehensive and binding universal human rights treaty of the 21st century. Um, and it was uh, entered into force in May 2008, so quite recently. Yeah, and I think this marks a significant shift because, of course, it moves the issue from international humanitarian law to international human rights law, which some people might question that this is really applicable still to armed conflict, but it's actually really important because it is one of only a few that specifically mentions that it's applicable during wartime, during armed conflict. And I think if I'm correct, this is the only other one with the rights of the child declaration, 
No. Convention. Indeed, yeah. indeed. With the convention of the rights of the child. And actually, it's unique even from its drafting process because there was a number of civil society organizations such as Disabled People International who partook in the negotiations and in the drafting of this convention. Um, and it's a milestone legislation because it finally, <laughs> a consensus was reached to view disability as an evolving concept emerging from a person-environment relation. So it embodies the aforementioned disability studies social model. And so so I believe that it productively manages to challenge the notions which delineate persons with disabilities as, you know, subhuman or a different category of human, the other, as has been mentioned by post-colonial scholars such as Said in Orientalist studies, and which can definitely be applied to persons with disabilities too. So then with the convention, who really started this movement to shift away the model that we had before? Interestingly, it was initiated by Mexico in 2002, and then the convention was adopted in 2006, entered into force in 2008. And to this day, Latin American countries are the ones who are pushing for it the most. And initially, there were actually 82 signatories and... Um, 44 to the, its optional protocol. And this is actually the highest number of signatories in the history to a UN convention on its opening day. So you can tell that there was really a global effort uh, to come together and uh, address this issue that had never previously been addressed before by a human rights treaty. Whereas we have, you know, one for women, one for, for the child as well. Then diving a bit further into the convention itself, it specifically sets out these requirements for countries to follow and ensure that all peoples have the same opportunities, safeguards, and access. Specifically, countries must combat stereotypes and promote awareness, which is, of course, extremely important as a lot of this issue is so understudied. Further, they have to guarantee rights to life, education, equal rights, looking directly at the advancement of women, girls, and children with disabilities, ensure, of course, that everyone is equal before the law, that people have the right to own their own property, control their finances, are free from torture, cruel, inhumane, and degrading treatment. And therefore, everyone, and specifically people with disabilities, must be protected for their physical and mental integrity. And therefore, countries really need to combat the issue of accessibility, because by identifying and eliminating obstacles and barriers, people with disabilities can access their environment, transportation, public facilities, and different services, which at the moment is something that is really problematic because a lot of essential services everywhere in the world, even here in the Netherlands, still don't have proper access. And that shows that the issue really isn't resolved. Indeed, indeed. And I think other than these very essential rights uh, that you've mentioned, one thing that sets this convention apart is its Article 16, which uh, grants persons with disabilities the right to freedom from exploitation, violence, and abuse. And these are actually three new categories which are not explicitly mentioned by any other international human rights instrument. And this is such a revolutionary contribution because it accounts for the ways in which uh, vulnerability corresponding to this particular group, so persons with disabilities, is produced by the social and economic relations and institutions. So it places the responsibility not on to the persons with disabilities themselves to lift themselves out of the situation and to have to deal with the impairment, which is what the medical model and the medical approach would have done in the, involving a lot of blame and guilt for persons with impairments for years uh, and actually 
placing that responsibility onto the societies and the countries and the governments and the institutions uh, which which should protect them and which should allow them to live uh, <laughs> alongside everyone else, let's say. Mm -hmm. And these responsibilities are made sure to also apply to armed conflict in times of war through Article 11. But then also, it's important to note that there's no derogation clause in the treaty. So states cannot simply derogate or escape from these responsibilities during armed conflict or states of emergencies, which of course is when these responsibilities are almost more important than ever. This is really when they need to be applied. And so if there was some derogating clauses or able to really get out of it. Indeed. And it's even more effective because it does still allow for flexibility in application at a national level because states are free to devise, you know, context-dependent responses to safeguard the rights of their citizens, of persons with disabilities within their territory. However, what I believe that we find generally is there is still a widespread lack of visibility and knowledge on the convention which is probably the main reason for which it is its application is hampered. Mm -hmm. Really, this application, of course, is the most important element of the convention because it's great to have it on paper and it's a very important academic step, but it really needs to be implemented. And so to do that, very briefly in a second, we'll go through a couple of case studies. Just before we do that, I'd like to lastly mention that there's also a committee for the rights of persons with disabilities which is then made up of independent experts, which receive reports from states and specifically also state parties uh, in these countries on how the states are implementing the convention. And this is also a body where people can go to to petition if all national resources or procedures have been exhausted and the issue still isn't resolved. Yeah, it's a good mechanism for monitoring and evaluation because what we find with a lot of human rights initiatives, it's that uh, they begin with great ideals and then they get lost <laughs> later on. Yeah. The model for implementation is also interesting to mention. Of course, a lot of countries, as we mentioned, signed on to the convention at the start. Some notable ones are the Netherlands, the UK, Israel and Palestine, all four signed on but then had very different timeframes for actually ratifying and ascending to the treaty, with the Netherlands only ratifying it in June 2016, the UK in 2010, Israel in 2012, and Palestine ascending to it in 2014. Notably, of course, as much as it's not great to always keep bringing it up, but the USA has not ratified it. And this shows an important lack of consistency or how countries still are not fully committed to actually dealing with these issues. Indeed, and possibly because of the increasing awareness of how uh, disability is produced rather than simply uh, being a singular and individual experience and how maybe some countries can be complicit in the reproduction of uh, a disabling environment and uh, therefore not ratifying it would give them a way of being absolved from their responsibility in the matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, on that note, do you think that the convention has delivered on its missions and expectations and that we can really use it in practice? Well, that's a very important question. I think that it is definitely a step forward from the international humanitarian law framework which we had before. Uh, however, I still believe that it does remain uh, 
centered around a more selective and ableist configuration of the human um, because it is not really ne necessarily able to account for those who become disabled via conflict and that's why I think disability in conflict is particularly necessary because it does grant persons with disability the protection in conflict but it doesn't acknowledge the very big reality and widespread reality of the production of impairment and that sometimes is a deliberate production and that production can uh, only be possible as stigma and uh, ideals about impairments are maintained alongside it. If that makes sense, it's it's a vicious yeah. circle that fuels each other and um, that the human rights model still hasn't moved away from. Yeah, that's yeah. It's of course a really big problem and that shows that the system, as much as it helps also in a way, facilitates these negative cycles. Yeah, and the way that social structures uh, within which the rights of persons with disabilities need to be examined in a much more nuanced way. Yeah. To maybe do that, we're going to look at a case study, specifically a case study from the Israel and Palestine conflict, which was a large part of your thesis. And just as a quick disclaimer before we begin, we think that it's really important to look at this case study because it shows how these frameworks are applied and used. And because, of course, you wrote and spent a lot of time researching it. But we'd like to just say that, of course, this is not a political discussion, that we're solely discussing the conflict from a legal perspective and only in the context of person with disabilities. So then on that note, would you maybe like to tell us a bit more about your research and, and how this case study really fits into this framework? Indeed, I, I completely agree. This is not an exceptional case. <laughs> so it's not also an endeavor for us to try and speak for persons with disabilities who are living in that context. I think we need to be very aware of that because uh, disability studies in general as, as a critical uh, theory of international relations aims to empower those who, let's say, have no voice. This is sub from subaltern theories. Spivak is a great, great author on that. Um, but yes, for us, it's more on the legal aspect and findings that I've kind of collected um, come from a combination of an interview with uh, the head of the Italian Agency for the Development Cooperation based in Jerusalem, who works closely on projects uh, for persons with disabilities in the occupied Palestinian territories, as well as uh, collecting testimonies and reports from a multitude of NGOs that are active on the ground and also integrating uh, scholarly and academic research by authors such as Jasbir Poir, who did herself field work in 2016 um, in Palestine. What were the most important findings on the ground or what did it really, what conclusion did it lead to? So the conclusions uh, of myself or the book or both, uh, both. both. Um, I think from the book makes very uh, by Poir makes very um, bold statements and uh, I understand that maybe not everyone is ready to agree with that but um, I think what a key takeaway is that uh, the Palestinian population, which is living under the protracted Israeli occupation, is essentially a population available for injury. And this is why this isn't particularly unique and interesting locale to examine questions of disability formations in. In fact, we need to remember that Israel has legal obligations towards Palestinian people. 
these are innumerable and wide-ranging because it exerts de facto governing authority over uh, the occupied Palestinian territory. Uh, and over these territories, there is the application of both international humanitarian law, human rights law, and also criminal law as recognized by many international organizations. And as you mentioned before, Israel and Palestine both have ratified um, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So what happens is that since the 2007 closure in Gaza, uh, there has been widespread documentation of a crisis in mental health rising, triggered by the chronic exposure to trauma and violence in relation to the occupation. And the pervasive effects of this are tested by the fact that around 47% of Palestinian girls and 54% of Palestinian boys aged 6 to 12 now reportedly have emotional and or behavioral disorders. This is a UN statistic. Um, on top of this, we need to understand that the blockades and the checkpoints that are around Gaza obstruct the delivery of essential medical care and aid often that Palestinian citizens may need. And this is a clear way in which an environment can have disabling effects on persons who need uh, a treatment and whose treatment may be interrupted and therefore may result in further complications uh, and worsened impairments. So with these facts and uh, with the accounts from what I've heard on the ground, I think the most important uh, point that we should become aware of is that the occupation is currently having a dual production of permanent disabilities. And firstly, this is done through the direct infliction of harm. There are increasingly reported incidents of shooting to injure rather than shooting to kill. And there are heartbreaking testimonies of uh, a lot of young, young persons in the occupied territories saying that they feel like sometimes soldiers don't even regard them as worthy of dying, but would rather that they remain impaired for life because that this is going to be a more, um, you'd say, sufferable um, experience. And, uh, and then the second way that the environment becomes disabling is that the attrition of the life support systems uh, that may allow the populations to heal from, you know, harm inflicted are also obstructed. Um, and so this is, let's say, a whole crippling phenomenon. But it must be understood that it's not only from the Israeli side. The Palestinian authorities themselves also have legal obligation to protect their own persons with disabilities and to advance disability rights. Uh, but uh, what Mr. Guglielmo Giordano uh, sadly told me is that within Palestine, there is still a huge stigma around disability. And that is why the practices of maiming, which Puar talks about are so effective because once one does become disabled uh, or impaired the society is not ready to accept them yeah this shows of course like a dual issue an issue of both practice of maiming but then also society as you said isn't ready so then i think that you can see the convention might be failing in two different ways in the first way of course it's not it's preventing or isn't fully being applied to prevent people from becoming disabled, but then also to heal them once they are, or if they are beforehand, it doesn't show. It shows that this awareness campaign, or, or yeah, trying to change the stigma around it, isn't really working. 
indeed when the stigma is not uh, contextualized i believe especially in uh, armed conflict yeah taking into account the real implications of this convention and of course this issue how do we move forward what type of measures should be pursued or which theory should underline our thoughts in the coming decades so definitely the aforementioned violations of both Israeli and Palestinians legal obligations towards persons with disabilities are not isolated incidents and strategies which deliberately create or aggravate impairments indicate the debilitating effects of occupation and war on both physical and social infrastructure um which means that what occurs to Palestinian persons with disabilities has a universal significance and there is a lot that we can learn from this there is so much more to be done in this realm but the foundations are undoubtedly there uh, international law has the potential for becoming and being the key instrument available to empower persons with disabilities um to share their voices their accounts and to emphasize and bring to light their stories in order so to for them to regain their agency which is often stripped away in contexts of conflict i think that the national geographic documentary it's actually a nobel peace prize winning documentary uh still human based in south sudan um also done in collaboration with the icrc leaves us on quite a hopeful note uh, a man called makur uh, working in a rehabilitation center in south sudan uh, admits that losing a leg made me see myself as the least valuable person in the world however he himself is now actively working in the rehabilitation center to help amputees uh, be fitted with appropriate um, prosthetic limbs and giving uh people let's say a second shot at life and uh, understanding that when an impairment begins life does not end hopefully on that uplifting note we're able to add to the awareness campaign and hopefully bring more light to this issue and inspire more people to also help with this because of course there's still statistics out there that show that by 2018 approximately 500 million people are still people with disabilities and living in states that are affected by armed conflict. So unfortunately, they still remain as forgotten victims, and we need to put all our efforts into ensuring that they aren't forgotten and that we also show that states have obligations and responsibilities that they must uphold. So on that note, I'd like to thank you so much Benedetta for coming on and taking the time to discuss this issue and sharing your thesis findings. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure and honor and uh I hope that Yeah, we've managed to do what we were hoping <laughs> with raising awareness about such a sometimes scary and taboo and stigmatized uh, topic. I completely agree. Thank you so much. Thank you. I would like to thank everyone for listening to this episode of the podcast. It's a good reminder to look beyond simply the best statistics in war and think more about the long-term consequences and effects of armed conflict. Thank you again, Benedetta, for sharing your research with us today, and everyone for supporting the podcast. I would like to lastly invite everyone again to share and review the podcast on all podcast platforms. It's been a real honor, and this was episode twelve of the Auxiliary Chamber. I'll speak to you guys soon.